Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. That'll be the, the bulk of our time, but we will look at some other passages. We won't necessarily turn there, but uh, I do want to take some time this morning to deal with some of the common objections to understanding the ongoing relevance of the fourth commandment as the Christian Sabbath. Uh, there have been significant figures in church history who argued that Christ abolished the Sabbath in the same way that he fulfills the shadows of the ceremonial law. Men like Augustine and Calvin had views that differ from my own on this, and many others could, could join that. For them, gathering on, on Sunday was not a command from God, but a tradition from man. And it was a valuable one, they would consider, but, but not in, in the same sense as the rest of the moral law. And so we'll consider several challenges to the notion of the Christian Sabbath this morning. Um, this is our final sermon on the fourth commandment. We began by recognizing that the origin of Sabbath observance takes, takes us back to the creation account, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And so if the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, then I believe it has abiding validity for all mankind. And we saw that being exemplified in the passage in Nehemiah that we read. And it was for all mankind. All of creation was required to observe this. So uh, we, we also considered the observance of the Sabbath, what that entailed in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Um, and then we looked at the, the purpose of the Sabbath, which was to delight in a day of rest and worship, according to Isaiah 58 verses 13 through 14. So if you want to go back and, and remind yourselves of those, you can do that uh, later on. Uh, then we, but we transitioned after that to the New Testament. We began looking at Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath. His corrections to the Pharisees returned his people to an accurate view of the day. Uh, in summary, Jesus taught three exceptions to the prohibition of work on the Sabbath. One was that there are works of piety, Secondly, there's works of necessity. And thirdly, there's works of mercy. So works of piety would involve what we're doing now. That, in a sense, this is my job as a pastor, right? To, to um, lead during this time. The, the session would also be involved in the leadership of the church. So there's works of piety that are required to, we're required to do in order to facilitate worship on this day. That includes the sound text, the, uh, you know, those setting up and preparing for us to come, those who are serving in that way, they're, they're working in that sense, but they're doing a work that is to the glory of God, and it, and it promotes what the day is set aside for. It promotes the purpose of this day. Okay, so even the nursery workers, Sunday school workers, it, you can go down the line. Anything that promotes the work of this day is good and healthy and encouraged on the Christian Sabbath. Secondly, the works of necessity would involve things like the military, the police department. These are things that you can't just give everyone the day off, right? Uh, we wouldn't be a nation very long if we told all of our enemies that we're going to take Sunday off, right? We're not going to do any work that day. Our military will be ignoring any attacks. Um, 
Second, you know, the same thing with the police department. If everyone knew they weren't going to have, no, there would be no police on the streets during that day, um, I think a lot of crime would be committed that day. Yeah. And if you question that, all you have to do is look at places where they have removed police from the streets and see how long it took for them to enter into chaos, uh, anarchy. It's, it's not healthy. It's not good. So works of piety, works of necessity, and you could add a, a number of occupations to that list. We don't have time to go into all of that. Thirdly, there's works of mercy. Um, Jesus, most of his healings that are recorded in the Gospels, healed on the Sabbath. And it was a work of mercy. And, uh, and so we would say the medical profession, you, you can't take a day off. If, if there is a, an emergency that needs to be taken care of, then it, sh- it should be done on that day regardless. Right? If you're capable of providing support and help to someone on, on the Sabbath, on the Lord's day, then you should do that. You should show that kindness and mercy to them. Um, so this morning, I want to turn our attention to several of the challenges that have been raised to the, Christ- to the concept of the Christian Sabbath. And that language of the Christian Sabbath comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 27, I mean, sorry, chapter 21, section 7. If you're, you, you can read that, that section, you can see that, that they very clearly believe that this is an ongoing, um, under the new covenant, we still have the administration of the Sabbath, but it has been transformed under the new covenant, right? The, instead of on the seventh day, it's now on the first day of the week, and we'll talk about that more fully later on, but I will admit that the fourth commandment does pose some unique challenges that are, are not um, present with the other commandments. The fourth commandment is, is uh, there, there is a lot more transition that takes place under the new covenant than you find with the other commandments. There's, there's just not a, a whole lot of, of change to the other ones, although they've been deepened and broadened under Jesus's teaching in the sense that, you know, Murder is, it would include hatred, and uh, adultery would include lust. Uh, the, the, in those ways, it's, it's, it, he, he wasn't expanding the meaning, but he was, ex, he was teaching in a way that was, that was more in-depth than the Pharisees at the time were, were recognizing those commands entailed, right? And so they, he, he broadens those teachings there, but the fourth commandment has even more significant changes, but although there's, there is a, a lot of change that takes place on the Sabbath observance, I believe it's still relevant for us today. I believe it still applies to us. And so one of the passages that we'll be looking at is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this time to sit under its teaching, and we pray that we would grow, that we would be equipped and, we, and edified. Lord, help us to recognize this day has been set apart for our good, that we might rejoice and enjoy a day of rest and worship. Lord, we want to recognize your goodness, your blessings, just as we could observe in your creation and enjoy and appreciate all that you've accomplished. We can also now recognize and appreciate all that you've done in your redemptive work through Christ. So part of our celebration of the Christian Sabbath is to recognize what Christ has done and to rest in his perfect work. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, 
while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the author of, of Hebrews discusses the Sabbath in a section where he's arguing that Jesus Christ is the great high priest. He's, he's arguing that Jesus is superior to Moses. And it's the, the, the final passage of Scripture here. Hebrews chapter 4 is the final passage of Scripture which uses the language Sabbath. You won't find it beyond this point in the New Testament. And so I want us to just briefly summarize this passage. And he begins here with a quote from the psalm. For we, have believed, for we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. It's quoted from Psalm 95, verse 11, which reads, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What he's taking is this curse, this psalmist curse upon the disobedient Hebrews, whom we've seen time and time again, rejected the Sabbath command, ignored the Sabbath command, did their own pleasure on that day, refused to listen. He's using the curse that's upon them to interpret it as also a promise that some will enter God's rest. That there is a day where some will enter that rest. So those who believe, he says, enter God's rest, which is exemplified as God's rest from his creative activities. And you find that in the next verse, verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. So man is to rest by enjoying God's finished work, both in creation and in redemption, and, for, and, and by glorifying him for that work. Since the fall, men have failed to enter God's rest. But hope is held out for those who repent, and that's what you find in verses 5 through 7. There's a hope for those who repent. But he says, all along, these people have failed to enter that rest. In fact, those who entered the land under Joshua didn't even experience this rest either. It wasn't just the rest of the promised land that was offered here. That rest is a, a rest specifically reserved for believers. The rest that he has in view here is a rest for believers to enjoy. 
And he says that in verse 3, right? For we who have believed enter that rest. So Sabbath keeping then in verse 9 and 10 is, it enters into the picture for the first time. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And this word is different than what we've been reading in this passage. It's sabbatismos, Sabbath rest. In fact, it, I think a better translation would be Sabbath keeping. It's a Sabbathing. It's, a, it's just one word, sabbatismos, and it's a verbal form of it. So it's Sabbathing, Sabbath keeping. There remains Sabbath keeping for the people of God. The word rest that we've seen prior to this is, is uh, katapausen. And it occurs 12 times in the passage from three, Hebrews 3.11 until 4.11. But in verse 9, it doesn't occur. He, he very clearly makes a shift from talking about a rest that he has been referring to to speaking specifically about a Sabbath-keeping rest. And so in Hebrews 4.9, the author deliberately substitutes katapausin with sabbatismos, and that shift would not, I mean, it would have been obvious to, in, to the original audience that he's talking about something different. And so the Sept, Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, you find that same word, sabbatismos, used four times. Once in Exodus chapter 16, which we looked at actually in this sermon series. Um, twice in Leviticus chapter tw uh, 23 and, and 26, and then once in 2 Chronicles 36. In each one of those cases where the word occurs, it denotes the observance or the celebration of the Sabbath. It does not represent a state that is being entered into as if it's a rest that you can uh, it's as a state of rest, but it's an actual observance of the Sabbath. It involves action. In fact, that's, that's also consistent with the Greek word, the form of the Greek word. The ending, mos, implies action, not inactivity or not a state of being. If, the, if, if he was trying to say you're entering into a, a rest where it's a state of rest, uh, and not an ongoing act, active obedience or observance of the Sabbath, then he would have used the, the word sabbaton instead of sabbatismos. Or he would have just continued to use the word he had been using throughout, which was katapausin. If he had done that, then it would be clear that he's, he's just talking about a state of rest that, we're, that is awaiting for the believer. But instead, Hebrews 4 is not explaining the abrogation of the fourth commandment. It's establishing it under the new commandment. It's recognizing that Christ has, has made some changes to that observance, but that it is still a valid command for the believer. It remains. Verse 10 also has to be understood here because it says, For whoever has entered God's rest has not rested or has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now there's a challenge here because there's only God, the word God only occurs in verse 10 once. And it's the second use that you find here, at least if you're reading along in the ESV. 
it's just pronouns prior to that. So it says, for whoever has entered his rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the translators have tried to help by saying Who has ever, whoever has entered God's rest. But the his rest has been translated in a number of ways by, by various commentators. The question is, who does the author have in view? It could be a reference to a believer's present rest. In that sense, in the sense that they're no longer working, but resting for their salvation. That's one way this has been interpreted. And, and they would say that, this, that in that sense, Christ has fulfilled that observance of the Sabbath so that we now are in a state of rest, which I've already said doesn't quite fit that language in verse 9. So could it be a reference to this present rest? Well, never does the author refer to a believer entering into their own rest in this passage. He, he refers to them entering into the rest of God. His work is finished. It's an aorist tense, and he's already entered his rest. So believers are in the process of entering God's rest, and that would mean that this is not a reference to a believer's rest. Whoever has entered God's rest, and, and so if you're taking it in terms of a believer entering into that rest, then it would be, first of all, a state of rest, and it would be a completed work. So that we would say, you no longer have to observe Sabbath keeping. And I'm trying to argue that that is inconsistent with the context of the passage because it speaks of entering into God's rest, and it's God's rest that has been finished. Now, John Owen and Richard Gaffin have pointed out as well that it's unlikely it would have the, uh, that the author of Hebrews would compare the believers resting from dead works with God's work in creation. If we're just talking about it being that you're entering from, you're moving from a, a works-based to a faith-based salvation, right? That you're trusting and resting in Christ alone for your salvation. If that's the case, then, then the, the analogy is that he's pointing to God's work as, an, as a parallel. And that would mean that, that our dead works that don't bring salvation are being paralleled with God's creative work at creation, it's, it's not a good parallel. It's, it's not the way I think the author has in, uh, is, is trying to communicate. So it seems unlikely that the author has the believer's own rest in view here. Could it be a reference to a future or a heavenly rest? That would also be a reference to the believer, but maybe a future heavenly rest. Well, there's no future tense in the passage at all. And in fact, grammatically, it doesn't make sense. Um, Greek scholars like Baugh and Burton have pointed this out, that it's grammatically unfeasible to interpret this as a reference to the future. So the Sabbath-keeping rest of God is still offered to believers living under the new covenant. And it's not the same as the rest of faith, as entering into a state of rest, but it does require that kind of faith. So that, that's the argument he's making here, is that Jesus Christ is in view. Think about this, for whoever has entered his rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. This is the work of Christ that has been fully accomplished in his resurrection. 
It is a pointing forward to the, or it's a pointing back to the resurrection rest that Christ accomplished. So in context, this is very consistent with what the author of Hebrews is saying, because in chapter three, what was he talking about? He was talking about Jesus being better than Moses. After this passage, he talks about Jesus as the great high priest. So this isn't some parentheses where he's beginning to talk about you and me. He's continuing to talk about the work of Christ that's accomplished, that we benefit, obviously, from. But the gospel calls sinners to enter God's rest through Christ, through his completed work. What this means is that Sabbath keeping, that's referenced in verse 9, provides another sign pointing to the finished work of Christ. And so since Christ's rest occurred on the first day of the week in his resurrection, so we are now entering rest on that day. It's a present resting on the first day of the week. And that's where I want to look at next. Just We're not going to reference um, all of the passages, but I'll, I'll bring them up and you can write them down if you want to look at them, but we're not going to turn to all of these passages. I just want us to consider how the early church exemplified their practice of worshiping on the first day of the week. Um, resurrection and Christ's resurrection and his early appearances occurred on the first day of the week. You can read all of the gospels that recognize that. Um, when James didn't see him at his first appearing, it wasn't until the next week that Jesus appeared to him. There was something about revealing himself on the first day of the week that set a pattern for the early church. And the apostles frequently engaged in evangelistic activity on the Sabbath, on the seventh day, right, on that old covenant Sabbath day, but they were doing so for evangelistic purposes. That wasn't when they were gathering as a church on Saturday, that was when they were going into the synagogue and, and preaching the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, to those who needed to hear it. But then it was on the first day of the week where we read that they had a pattern of gathering together to take the Lord's Supper, for instance. Acts 20, verse 7. We see in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul instructs the church in Corinth to take up a collection of financial gifts as is their custom of gathering on the first day of the week. So Sunday was a day that they clearly had a tradition of gathering together. And it, and it became known as the Lord's Day because it was a reference to the resurrection of Christ. It was, it was now the day of the Lord. The Lord's Day was Sunday, the day of his resurrection. And so you have John using that language in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. He says it was on the Lord's Day that he was in the Spirit and received the revelation. And that language of the Lord's Day was used consistently as a reference to Sunday. We have very clear extra-biblical evidence um, from the second century onward, where, uh, from the middle of the second century onward, where the early church fathers used the Lord's Day to refer to Sunday. So it's, it, it was not the habit of New Testament authors to uh, mention the day that something occurred, unless there, that was a special day. And so they're mentioning here that it was uh, that that it was on the first day of the week, as John or John mentions that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That's that was already a day that was recognized as a day that was set apart. So the apostles, by gathering on the first day of the week, they maintain that pattern of six days of working and one day of rest. 
And the commandment remained in force, but the day it was observed changed. They didn't simply choose a convenient day to worship. They did it with the intent of celebrating the Lord's resurrection. And so, yes, all time has been redeemed and is holy, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, and all of life can be seen as a, an offering of sacrificial worship, Romans 12, 1. But the practice of gathering for corporate worship on a particular day has ongoing relevance and significance. It's not up for uh, just whatever we please, whatever day we please. That's not the example we have in Scripture. Joseph Pipa says the Old Covenant people looked forward to the, accomplish, to the accomplishment of redemption, so they kept the Sabbath at the end of the week. After the rest giver had accomplished his work, the New Testament church kept its Sabbath on the day he entered into his rest, signifying that although we wait for the consummation, we already have begun to participate in this rest. So again, it's, it's, it's a rest that we are currently and presently enjoying because of what Christ has accomplished. So under the old covenant, this rest was imperfectly observed on the seventh day, if it was observed at all. Under the new covenant, it, it is to be observed on the first day of the week until Christ returns. So in celebration of the redemption of Christ accomplished in his resurrection, we gather for rest and worship on Sundays. That's the day that has been set apart. Now, there are other objections, and we're going to be brief on these, but there's some objections that people raise on several passages in Paul's letters. And so some have argued that um, making or not making a day holy is a matter of personal preference. They get that from Romans chapter 14, verses 5 through 6. And in this passage, we see Paul speaking of weaker brothers who are unable to enjoy their, their Christian freedom due to a conflict in their conscience. And so with regard to food, Paul speaks of the strong brother being tempted to disdain the weak who is unwilling to eat certain foods sacrificed to idols, while the weak brother is tempted to condemn the strong for being willing to eat food sacrificed to idols. Well, he uses the same idea as an analogy to speak about days. With regard to days, the weak brother esteems certain days, while the strong brother esteems all days alike. And so some say this, if you're going to say that there's ongoing relevance for the Sabbath for the Christian, that this is a Christian Sabbath, well, you're esteeming a day. You're the weaker brother. <laughs> and so you need to actually recognize that it, it's not a matter, it doesn't matter what day. Well, both issues, food and days, are dealing with ceremonial law in the Old Testament, not the moral law. If it were the moral law, can you think of any other moral law that's treated like this? That's treated as a matter of Christian liberty? Now, some of you say it's wrong to murder. Others of you think it's okay. Who are you to judge? You don't do that with the moral law. You're not allowed to do that. The moral law is binding. So these are dealing with ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law. And it's a sin to break any commandment of God's moral law. Believers are rebuked for returning in, in Galatians chapter 4. 
uh, verses 9 through 11, believers are rebuked for returning to Old Testament patterns of worship, which would include the observance of days and months and seasons and years. Well, you're going to start to see a pattern in how I understand these. Because Paul was not speaking, uh, or in this passage, Paul is speaking against false teaching of the Judaizers who required faith in Christ plus keeping the Mosaic law, including the ceremonial aspects of it, to be saved. So their concern was for justification in Galatia. And this was not a question of liberty, a liberty of conscience in Romans four, as Romans 14 is speaking of. So to accept the gospel of the Judaizers, and that's in scare quotes, right? it's not a real gospel, it's not a true gospel. To accept the gospel of the Judaizers would be to fall away from grace. That's the case Paul is making in Galatians. And so even if we were to concede that Paul has a weekly Sabbath in view here, the argument that he's making is that, observe, that observing even the Sabbath cannot justify a person. We should all be willing to agree with that. This doesn't make salvation possible for you to observe the Sabbath, right? You observe it out of gratitude for the work that Christ has accomplished on your behalf. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, some point out how the law of commandments contained in ordinances have been abolished in the flesh of Christ. You can, you can read the passage, it, it says that, that the law of commandments and contained in ordinances have been abolished in the flesh of Christ. But this would imply that if, you, if you're reading it to apply to the law in general, then it's contradicting what Paul says later on in chapter 6. It's, it's not saying that the moral law was entirely abolished by the death of Christ. That it no longer has any binding upon anyone because of what Christ has done. Rather, it was abolished. What was abolished in this verse was the wall that kept Jews separated from Gentiles. That was torn down. Paul was not referring to the abiding moral law, but the temporary ceremonial law that instituted this separation. That's why he provides circumcision as a specific example. He's talking about ceremonial law that has been abolished. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, this would be the last one we, we look at. Paul specifically refers to the Sabbath as an Old Testament shadow. And so that's where a lot of people kind of camp on. They, they look at that passage and they say, there's no getting around it. He calls the Sabbath a shadow. Since Christ is the reality, since Christ is now present, we have no more need for the shadow. But again, do these texts contradict what we've read in Mark chapter 2, 27 to 28, uh, Matthew chapter 5, that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, Hebrews 4, 9, as we just read. Paul's opponents seem to be, in this case, the Essenes. They're ascetic. They're, they're trying to earn their salvation by strict uh, adherence, uh, legalistic adherence to the law of God and to beyond the law of God, right? To even their own... Um, 
additional laws, man-made tradition. So, so um, they're actually, the Essenes were even stricter than the Pharisees with regard to food regulations and Sabbath observance. They just multiplied the number of laws that had to be observed. So we would concede that, that each of these texts is referring to Jewish days that the Christian is no longer obligated to observe, certainly to man-made traditions that take place on those days. Scripture refers to many Sabbath days. In Leviticus, Leviticus 23, it speaks of the Passover as a Sabbath. It speaks of first fruits and Pentecost, feasts of weeks, feasts of trumpets, days of, day of atonement, feasts of tabernacles. And so these are the days that Paul observed in Acts chapter 20. He continued to observe those days, as I've already said, for evangelistic purposes. But he wasn't required to, and he wasn't requiring everyone else to observe them in the same way either, especially Gentiles, as the Judaizers and the Essenes were arguing. So during this transitional period of the early church, this was a, a matter of evangelistic opportunity, not religious requirement. So here's the, the context. Let me just summarize it here. In Rome, the encouragement was not to be critical to those who do or don't observe these Jewish days, these Jewish days of feast and celebration. In Galatia, opponents of Paul had argued that circumcision and the observance of these days were matters pertaining to salvation. In Colossae, Paul is concerned with the ceremonial nature of these practices. So these ceremonial laws were introduced under Moses. Therefore, we must conclude that they do not have the Christian Sabbath in view because the Christian Sabbath, we would say, points back to the creation ordinance. And it's universally applied. Well, in, in conclusion, you have to come back to our understanding of what Christ has done. We try to make that clear with Hebrews 4, emphasizing it there as, as the only way we enter into this kind of Sabbath-keeping rest that is honoring to the Lord is because of what Christ has accomplished. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All right, we must keep coming back to this promise. We must keep recognizing, even if we differ and disagree about our understanding of the Christian Sabbath and its ongoing relevance, we have got to be united on this point. We have got to recognize the centrality of the gospel and in the hope that we have because of the work of Christ. Kevin DeYoung said, the most important way we observe the Sabbath is by ceasing from our flawed, sinful labors and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. No matter your view, if that's not your recognition as the primary importance of the Sabbath, as the primary uh, thing that, that our Sabbath observance is pointing to, whether it be just past relevance, present relevance, or future relevance, it's all pointing to the work of Christ. It's a recognition that we are resting from our works and trusting in Him. Trusting in Christ alone. So the priority is ceasing from laboring for our salvation rather than resting in Christ alone. That should be the, go the, the gospel you're preaching to yourself daily. Every morning you wake up and recognize the mercies, his mercies are new, and then you enter into a time of 
chaos. And you turn on the news or you open Facebook and you see the feed filled with, with a bunch of nonsense coming from inside and outside the church. And it's terrifying and it's, it's disrupting and makes us feel hopeless. And we say, I'm so anxious and fearful about today and tomorrow and the rest of this week. And we need to come back to this and say it's, we find our true and our lasting rest in Christ. We find our only rest. And that is fulfilling and satisfying in him. So how that rest is practiced for believers is going to differ depending on your context, depending on your your recognition of, of your interpretation of these passages. And it's and that's okay. <laughs> I, I have brothers and sisters who who I respect for their differences. But we must continue to fall back on this promise of hope. Right? That the primary purpose of the Sabbath is to recognize that we are to cease from our flawed, sinful labors and to repent of those things and to place our hope and faith in Christ alone. It's, it's not about the, the way necessarily, right? as far as the primary purpose of it, it's not the, pr- the way it's practiced, but the object of our trust. And it must be Christ rather than ourselves. It's not about how close we adhere to these principles, but it's the perfect work of Christ on our behalf. So let us give him thanks. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have given us an opportunity to come on this day that's been set apart. We believe it's a a, a day that, that you've given us to worship and rest. So whether we're here gathered together corporately or gathered in our homes with our families or just by ourselves, Lord, that, that help us to, to do something different on this day, to use this as a, a time to truly give our attention and our hearts, our affection to you, to, to leave off the distractions of this world, to set those aside. We, we enter back into that for the other six days of the week, but this day is set apart. And we want to honor you with our time. We know that it, there's a blessing attached to that, that we actually receive when we honor this day. We receive blessing from you. And so, Lord, help us to just enjoy that rest today to encourage others to enter into that rest and help us to not tire of reminding ourselves of the true rest that is found in Christ alone when we cease from trying to earn favor with you, trying to earn a right standing with you, trying to earn peace. Or whatever it is that we oftentimes replace the gospel with, whatever we turn into an idol that we worship and and try to, to place our hope in. Lord, help us to set that aside. To be reminded of 
what Christ has done, to fall at his feet. And as we repent, as we hear his assurance of pardon, and as we come to the table, Lord, may we rejoice and celebrate in that completed work. It's in his name we ask it. Amen.